topic. First, though, talking about the variants, we hear uh, during the briefings, and I'm sure it will be mentioned again this afternoon at the three o'clock briefing with Dr. Bonnie Henry and the health minister, the variants of concern and how they are spreading in Canada. So why are they spreading faster? Why are they able to spread faster? And what do we need to know about them? My first guest today, Dr. Horacio Bach, adjunct professor with the Division of Infectious Diseases at UBC. Dr. Bach, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Why do the variants, or what do we know about them, that what is causing them to be able to spread much faster? Um, unfortunately, we don't know a lot. Uh, this variant, the, specifically the P1 variant, has 17 new mutations compared to the um, original uh, strain, let's say the, the Wuhan strain, what we call and when we talk about mutation, it, can, it may be a change in one of the pieces of the protein. It can be a, a deletion, means part of the protein is missing. And all these mutations may confer new abilities or benefits to the virus. The, um, apparently, the way that we understand now the, the P1, the reason is um, transmitted so fast is because once they infect a cell, you, the, I mean, the virus needs to replicate inside the cell to make new, uh, let's say, uh, offspring, what we call the new, new viruses that will, the cell will, will die and they will explode and all these new viruses will go to the neighbor uh, cells and then will continue like a chain. Um, now, uh, the point is that it looks like this specific variant uh, produces more viruses per cell compared to the original strain. For example, if the original strain, when it's infecting a cell, and just for an illustration, produces, let's say, 100 viruses, that is not something, you know, uh, unusual. So this variant probably is producing double, triple, or four times more of the virus. So every time that someone is infected and is sneezing or coughing, Instead to release, for example, 100 viruses to the environment, we release, let's say, 1,000 or 5,000 particles. So that is the reason you, at the same time, you may catch more people or, or a, a host, what we call that, you know, the virus will find and will continue to multiply there. So um, unfortunately, the progress of the research is uh, not so easy because uh, it's not that we get the variant, uh, you know, and you go from the public health authorities, you get the variant and you start to work. It's a long term, a lot of logistics. And the, it, for example, the variant now, if I want to do research, is not available yet because it needs to come from public health, Health Canada, and then once it's authorized, they will send to you and may take two, three uh, weeks and sometimes months. So we apply for that. We haven't received anything. So it's a lot of logistics in the middle. So unfortunately, we cannot uh, progress so fast. Uh, do we know if there's the possibility then, because it's not unusual for a virus to mutate, but in the case of COVID-19, if somebody has had COVID-19 already, are they then more susceptible to getting it again if they're exposed to one of the variants? Yes, there are already um, reports from Brazil, that is the original place where it was uh, originated, this variant, that people asked, they were infected, recovered. I'm not talking about vaccine, just the natural way that you are infected, you make your antibodies, 
and they were reinfected afterwards. Means that apparently the antibody that we produce in the natural way cannot control this variant. Um, they didn't specify if the second infection is uh, more severe, less severe, it's okay, so people will feel like a light symptoms. That we don't know yet, but um, definitely you can be reinfected. Even there are cases, re- reported cases, that the same person was infected with two different variants that they are located in two different areas of the lung. So um, that's the reason it's very important to, uh, you know, to educate people that it's very important to continue with the guidelines of the public health and also to be vaccinated. Uh, the, the one mutation as well that's getting a lot of attention right now, the E484K, or uh, as some are calling it, the EEK mutation, uh, there are reports and some early uh, information that says that it, it might uh, evade the antibody response and that uh, it renders the vaccine far less effective. How concerned should we be about that? Um, it, yeah, at this point, we don't know because we don't have enough data to say, you know, you know, 10,000 people, 100,000 people have an ABCD. But definitely a mutation we know that may change the structure of the protein. So the antibodies we generate as a result of the vaccine is exactly a key and a lock. So you generate the key that is going to the lock and you grab the virus, basically. Once there is a little difference in the structure of the protein as a result of the mutation, what may happen is that you put the key is when you try to open, uh, you know, the door of uh, uh, someone else that you you try the key and doesn't work because it's not fitting there. So that is the problem. The most of the antibodies we generate are not apparently. I mean, studies will come are not necessarily good to grab or latch the virus and get rid of it. That's a problem with these antibodies. It looks like we we still generate a low number of antibodies that they can cope with the virus, but, but they are not enough to get rid of them. And that's the reason you see that the well, escape means that we don't have enough antibody to get rid of the virus. And when we talk again about the P1 virus and getting a bit more information about that, uh, we know that's what was identified in Whistler and which was, which was uh, the, the main reason, I think, why they shut down Whistler Blackcomb. Uh, we know that it's uh, part of the reason or, or a good part of why we've seen so many players on the Vancouver Canucks uh, getting COVID-19. Uh, so is it basically a race against the vaccine? And like you said, doing uh, keeping up all of those other measures in the meantime? Exactly, yes. Um, I, I know that the companies like Modern and Pfizer, they are talking already to generate a booster that to cover this uh, variant because they will come. And since then, you know, we have to continue with the guidelines. And it's a matter of time that this P1 will take over the rest of the variants and the original strain. You know, those that they are more effective, that's nature. They are having competition. The best will survive. That's the law in the jungle, you know. And then that will, will happen. We know that it's an increase, a very fast increase of the variants. And the problem in the past was a little hard to identify because you need to change all the tests that you do in order to identify these variants. It takes longer. It's not a simple test. And that's the reason probably was underreported in the past. But now we see that it's a huge increase, you know, day after day. 
Uh, is this what we expected? Because I know a lot of people, myself included, when you start hearing about research, even though it's in the early days, uh, that now there's a variant that isn't uh, responding to the vaccine or, or we need to keep doing this and these are these mutations that were that are coming at us faster than we can get vaccinated. Is this what, what you expected or what we should have expected for the rollout of this? Because I know uh, this is just, it just comes and it makes people that, that bit of hope that we had, it tends to kind of take it away. Yeah, that is correct. So if, ideally, ideally, you could vaccinate in one week all your population, the ability of the virus to come and produce a mutation, it will be reduced significantly. So that's the reason it's very important to cover as much as possible with the population. Now, we know that the P1 uh, variant is uh, causing more severe cases compared to the original uh, strain. And we see more and more in younger, uh, in a younger population between 19 to 40 years old. And um, I'm not, I don't think that the virus has a predilection for a predilection for this specific group. It's just because this group is, you know, socializing much more, going outside or parties or, um, you know, events that, you know, older people that may uh, continue to, you know, stay home and so on, not so socially active. And that is very important to continue to use the mask and, you know, continue with the public health. It's very important. I'm sorry I'm saying over and over, but we need to take uh, our responsibility. The government cannot do everything. Scientists cannot do everything. We need the cooperation of the population just to keep that, you know, bringing down the level. So we have 1,000 cases per day. That is huge. It's very unusual. All right. Uh, Dr. Bach, thank you so much. It's always great to have you on the show. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks for being with us. Well, in the Vancouver Sun, reporter Dan Fumano has written a very interesting piece about some taxes that are being levied against a restaurant owner in Vancouver. It's against, uh, for the owner of Las Margaritas. And if you've ever been in that neighborhood of Kitsilano, you've likely seen uh, that restaurant. They've got a small patio off the side. The taxes, though, are for the airspace because the owner also owns the uh, airspace above the building. So it's the spec speculation and vacancy tax, apparently, that he is being hit with. Also quoted in the article is Paul Sullivan, who is a property tax expert with Ryan LLC. And Paul Sullivan joins us now to talk a little bit more about this. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for being on board, Jill, and uh, happy to talk about this. Well, how does that actually work in a scenario like this uh, that Dan has written about in uh, the Vancouver Sun? Uh, here's a restaurant owner, also owns the rights. How does that fall into the speculation of vacancy tax? Well, I mean, I think Vancouverites have heard so much about the highest, <clears throat> the highest and best use situation with small business properties, where we value them um, as redevelopment properties. And to that residential redevelopment value, we put a commercial tax rate. Well, my firm litigated against the government for many years in 2014 and won the case where the airspace above that residential redevelopment potential should be taxed at a residential tax rate, which is about a quarter of the commercial tax rates because we're just taking too much taxes off of these small business properties. So that was the very first instance of a property tax relief for small business in Vancouver. And what it did is it created this 
portion of residential value, which is air that has now become classified as residential. And therefore, we have vacant residential lands and we are subject to speculation tax and additional school tax on that residential density above our small businesses. Uh, so how does that work, though, in in that it seems like he's being penalized for not building or developing that airspace, but where his restaurant is located in Kitsilano, um, my guess is he couldn't really do that or it would be difficult to do that anyway. Well, well that's right. I mean, um, we, there's a, it's, a, it's a complex problem. I mean, we everybody wants to see more housing. More housing is the only answer to affordability and taxation is not. Um, to assume that every property, so this, this legislation was written in 2018, and really what the government has said to these people is redevelop your property right away within two years or become subject to this tax in 2021. So they chose not to impose it against these properties for two years. That, that time has expired. You haven't redeveloped your property you're taxed now. And so, you know, it, I guess it comes down to values. And do, do we value our small business properties and, and, and our local independent businesses and places for people to work and eat and enjoy? Or do we just want that tax revenue? So the only way the owner of this restaurant, Las Margaritas, could have avoided getting this tax, it looks like, would be if he had shut down, closed up and redeveloped? 100% only way out of it is you have to demolish all our small business properties and build those you know standard four-story buildings put the you know the standard you know global retail companies into them and lose the fabric of our communities it's the character that everybody likes and though that is what is at jeopardy here and and to tell me that you know not redeveloping these properties is causing housing prices to go up is just not fair there are thousands and thousands of permits stuck in city hall because we can't get them approved there's lots of development activity that can occur we don't need to be picking on our small business properties. Uh, was any uh, reason given as to why the exemption then was was put in place until now? Was there some expectation that suddenly a lot of small business owners would uh, find a way to redevelop? Or why were, why were they given that window? Well, um, <laughs> I'm a skeptic, so I, I'm going to tell you they didn't know how to do it initially. Um, however, the reason that they gave Dan Fumano was, well, we gave people two years to get developing their properties. So what it looks like, uh, if, if they know what they're doing here, is what they're saying is, we want all our small business properties closed. You've got two years to do it, plow them in the ground, and let's start building some of those you know, generic four-story buildings. What about the issue of, of highest and best use uh, assessments? Because that's been an issue in Vancouver in the past, too, and, and some trying to get, get rid of that, saying it does really unfairly target some businesses. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's a complicated problem. It, it's market value. That's what we assess people at. Um, so there's a difference between market value and taxation. So we can value them at their redevelopment potential, but let's not tax them uh, in a way that's unfair and, and extracts too much tax out of these properties. Um, you know, we have all levels of government saying we're going to help small business, and then we smack them with a spec tax on the air over their restaurants. It just reeks of inappropriateness and this, this can be fixed very simply. Any property that has a business license is exempt. I mean, when they wrote that spec tax, they wrote in 16 pages of exemptions because it's such a messy piece of legislation. But they couldn't spare the small business property. I mean, really? And then they talk about saving small business. 
we got some problems in politics right now. So what kind of exemptions are in place? Oh, um, if you're under construction in this instance, you, you would be exempt. Uh, if you were, uh, um, you know, a seniors care facility, you're you're exempt. If you're a, a, a rental property, you're exempt. If you're occupied, you're exempt. But if you're vacant land, you're causing our housing problem because you're not building, and you're you're causing prices to go up. That's the theory here. So it's wrong, and it's just wrongly wrongly applied to this type of property. And and there's so many exemptions. Surely preserving local independent businesses is a priority, particularly at this in this time. So unless things change at this point, uh, Dan, the owner of the restaurant, and others that are would be in a similar situation uh, in the the Vancouver Sun story, it says his his taxes is going to be an additional about six thousand dollars, which uh, in the middle uh, or in the midst of a pandemic is not great timing either. Uh, so he either just has to come up with the six thousand dollars or what? Well. Um you know, the typical government move and you don't pay your taxes is they put a charge against the property. And if you don't pay them within two years, the property gets sold for a tax sale. Now, in a case where this is he's, he's a tenant in a property, um, his, his owner would now be in that position and he's in breach of his lease. And when you're in breach of your lease because you haven't paid your taxes, which are a requirement all across North America, that's how the market works. Um, you can get kicked out. So. You know, a business operator has got to make a decision to, to slug it out through these horrible times and pay these horrible new taxes on the air above his restaurant or, or, or just fold his tent. And I don't think Vancouverites want to see all of our local independent businesses disappear over speculation tax. It's just wrong. All right, uh, Paul, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us, though, to talk more about this. Pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, we are going to talk a little catch-up. You're probably wondering, if you didn't hear uh, me promoting this segment, uh, why are we talking catch-up? Well, according to some news articles, uh, mainly out of the United States, uh, there is a COVID-19-related catch-up shortage. So we thought we would go to our food expert to talk a bit more about this. Sylvain Charlebois joins me now, head of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Thanks so much for being with us. It's the end of the world, isn't it? <laughs> it's not. It's not. <laughs> but Toilet paper and now ketchup. Now ketchup, My yes. Goodness. I think that phrase has been used a lot, that, that ketchup yes. is the new toilet paper, which That's conjures right. up a whole other strange, strange image. What's happening? <laughs> why, why are we seeing a shortage of ketchup? Well, it's it's a food service play. I mean, uh, the economy in in America is doing very well. Uh, the shortages have been are, have been reported in the U.S. only, not in Canada, by the way. And so, in the U.S., of course, the um, uh, the restaurant sector is doing much better. Uh, actually, even before COVID, uh, Americans tend to, uh, did go to the restaurant way more often than Canadians. So that was a big market. But with uh, with the shift in the U.S. with the pandemic, it was much more severe there than here. In Canada, we spent about 34, 35% of our budget on food consumed at the restaurant. In America, it was 54%. So when everything closed down, that shock was immense. And so, of course, all those ketchup packages actually went, uh, well, didn't have a whole lot of it didn't, there wasn't a whole lot of demand for them. Uh, but now things are picking up. 
the supply chain recalibrated, uh, focusing more on retail, but now food service is putting out pressure, which is why it's it's not surprising to see a shortage of of some of these products. I suspect that there are shortages of other products, but ketchup tends to be well-known and people can relate to the product. But in Canada, uh, I would be surprised if, if it would happen because we do manufacture most of the ketchup we eat in Canada. And, and as we know, uh, the pandemic is, is, is impacting the food service industry quite a bit still today compared to the U.S. So that's why we're not necessarily hearing about shortages here in Canada versus the U.S., Right. And and interesting, too, when we're talking about this, like you said, it's mainly in the U.S. and it's the ketchup packages, uh, the takeout type packages, not so much That's the bottles. Right. That's right. And so the concern, of course, was, well, when you can't serve people in a store, you have to uh, deliver or with curbside pickup, you tend to use more of these packages. But again, in Canada, there was never... Uh, any problems, issues, because the business wasn't uh, as significant. Right now in Canada, uh, based on our estimates, uh, 25% of our money spent on food is spent uh, on food uh, consumed outside the home or delivered to our homes, which could require uh, ketchup packages. But like I said, the volume is, is nowhere near what we're seeing right now in the U.S., uh, do you think there's any possibility? Uh, I guess it would depend on how long. Uh, right now in BC, we don't have uh, in uh, in-house dining. The dining rooms have been closed. It's just patio dining or takeout. Uh, if something like that was to continue, or we were going to see this kind of rolling uh, the rolling measure, do you think it's possible we could see something like this or a shortage in Canada? <laughs> <laughs> Twelve months after the start of a pandemic, nothing is impossible. <laughs> so it's always. I mean, you may. I think if you if you see a shortage of something, it may it may be uh, a nuisance for some people, but it wouldn't be major. It wouldn't be uh, something like we're running short of eggs or milk or something like that. It's uh, it's maybe utensils or relish or <laughs> mustard, not something major, and it would probably be very short term it wouldn't be uh for a prolonged period of time so i don't think we need to worry about our condiments right now and i suspect that a lot of people who are listening to us right now would have a stack of these packages in their kitchen drawers as we speak (laughs) Uh, it made me think and i wonder too uh, is this perhaps an example of of things that are are changing or behavior that's changing because when i started reading these stories out of the states on just how many packages it was something like 12 billion packets of those little ketchup packets a year Uh, and then i thought well that's probably 12 billion packets that go into the garbage every year. I'm not sure that people recycle those packets. And I wonder if people see things like that, do you think twice and think, okay, I'm going to get takeout, but I'll just use the ketchup I have in my fridge when I get home and not and, and kind of skip the little packet and, and perhaps maybe some good could come of that. Yeah, you bring up a very good point. Uh, so the the food service the food service industry, which had to pivot a lot over the last twelve months, are are asking themselves that question: If we are to serve people outside of our dining halls, um, how can we reduce our carbon footprint? How can we actually change our packaging strategy? Because to keep food hot or cold for an extended period of time outside uh, an establishment, well, you require 
some good packaging and that packaging and you of course you want to keep your food safe as well food safety is a big issue for 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 restaurants right and so you want to figure out a way to keep your food safe at a good temperature uh without without the waste and that's a big challenge but i would say that right now packaging does exist for these types of applications but typically they're more expensive and so are people willing to pay more for ketchup to get an eco-friendly package who knows <laughs> yeah it's a good question uh, for sure yeah. uh, uh, some of the other shortages and again this was just one of the articles I, i'd seen that uh, grape nuts cereal apparently is also in the united states there there's a shortage on that to, can we link any of this do you think to that uh, blockage in the suez canal or is that something that we're still going to see perhaps uh, delays and things down the road well, with the soy situation last week, I'm expecting shortages for some products uh, over the next little while. Uh, it would probably take a couple of weeks, so I wouldn't be surprised. But don't forget, I mean, I, I think we can't, we, we shouldn't confuse shortages with uh, with uh, discontinued discontinued products. Uh, right now, a lot of CPG companies are discontinuing products there's there's been a lot of changes uh, in the food industry in the last 12 months uh, some products are more popular while others are less popular because of our way of life now and so you're seeing if you're seeing an empty shelf in the uh, in the grocery store it's not necessarily because there's they're short of something it's because they're recalibrating recalibrating their portfolio of brands and products that's basically what's going on right now all right. Uh, wanted to ask you as well, uh, before I let you go, you've also written a, a new piece about processed food and processed food often yeah. kind of gets the uh, don't eat that. Uh, the the dietitians will tell you it's better to go on the outside of the grocery store aisles, whole foods. So this is kind of in defense of processed food. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I'm an editor of, uh, of uh, a journal called Trends in Food Science and Technology. It's the number one food science uh, journal, academic journal in the world. And we're about to release a new a meta-analysis. Uh, I'm not an author myself. I, I'm, I'm just an editor. Uh, but uh, the group of authors coming from, from Europe actually reviewed over 400 studies only to realize that there is no consensus around how we classify what is a process food product and what is not. And, uh, and there seems to be a lot of um, subjective judgment on processed foods. We tend to uh, correlate industrial practices with the nutritional value of, of food products. And even here in Canada, with Health Canada, we tend to do that a lot. So we need to be careful. Not all processed foods are created equal. Some of them are not good for you, of course, but some of them are actually still quite desirable and 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 I would recommend them for for people who are looking for you know healthy solutions Right, because we tend to think of processed food, or at least I do, as something that you can put in the cupboard or you could leave it in your car for a few months in the packaging and it would still be fine exactly and don't forget with processing there's a reason why we process food it's to is to conserve food longer, save time, save money uh, we're always looking for convenience. Um, that's the that's the reality of food processing, and uh, it allows us to spend a little bit less time in the kitchen. Because, uh, I mean, for the last twelve months, uh, it seems as though uh, we should be cooking everything we eat. Well, in in reality, we just can't. <laughs> we have other things, and once we're done with the pandemic, 
we'll be traveling again. We'll be moving around again. And so spending less time in a kitchen will require, yes, some pre-processing. Uh, I think we just need to educate ourselves in terms of what is a good processed food product and what is not. Do you have an example? I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have an example of what would you say is a good processed food product? Well, I don't want to. I don't want to name brands uh, or anything, but you, you just have to look at the list of ingredients, uh, mm-hmm. and and you'll see. I mean, if there are some things that you just can't recognize, I would stay away from them. Uh, and 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 because of the pandemic, uh, there is there is um, more and more uh, companies are looking to supply local foods, local healthy food products, and. And frankly, I think we're all going to need those kinds of products. Uh, A lot of people have gained weight. (laughs) They haven't taken care of themselves throughout the last 12 months. And so I think a lot of Canadians will want the food industry to to accompany them uh, on on their journey to to better health uh, coming out of the pandemic. All right. Uh, that uh, sounds very familiar. I think a lot of people can relate uh, with yeah. that. <laughs> the COVID-15. The COVID yeah, yes, yes <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois, always good to talk with you. Thanks so much. Take care. We have been talking a lot about small businesses, and even though there has been some financial help for small businesses, in many cases they are struggling and really trying to do anything they can to stay afloat. And joining me now to talk a little bit more about this is Annie Dormuth, Director of Provincial Affairs for Alberta, that part for Alberta with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Annie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having CFIB on the show. Uh, how? What are you hearing from small businesses? And I know it's different for different types of businesses. We've been talking a lot about restaurants on the program today because of the two in BC that stayed open, uh, even though there was a public health order. What are you hearing? Well, definitely a lot of frustration and uncertainty fills the air for small businesses, especially those in the hardest hit industries, such as the hospitality industry and arts and recreation industries. I mean, these are two industries that have had some of the, you know, the most strict restrictions on them, um, you know, for more than a year now, actually. And uh, understandably, you know, small business owners of these of these establishments are just, you know, almost getting to the to the breaking point of whether or not they can uh, they can actually survive and hopefully uh, see brighter days ahead um, once we are outside of this pandemic. Uh, is there enough help? Do you think, as far as financial help for businesses or, or any other measures that can be done to help them? Well, understandably, again, uh, quite frankly, I think small businesses are getting to a point where they simply need to reopen and they need to reopen under pre-pandemic operations and are kind of, you know, you know, under, you know, no social distancing and things like that. But until that time comes, you know, it's really imperative that both, you know, the federal and provincial government of British Columbia are there to support small businesses. And unfortunately, you know, as in the case in BC, it seems to be, you know, taxes and taxes upon taxes for these small businesses at a time when they can basically least afford it right now. I think it was just earlier today, uh, news broke that the even the speculation vacancy tax rate is now going to be uh, applied to to business owners, which again is an entirely new tax on them on them at a time when they can basically least afford it and hanging on by very very thin thread.
Uh, one of the restaurants that stayed open, it has since been closed. Uh, the city of Vancouver suspended the business license until April 20th. Uh, on Friday, that business owner, the restaurant owner, uh, said one of the reasons he stayed open and did that in defiance was because he didn't think it was fair that other businesses like Walmarts and Costco's and places where people were crowding, yes, uh, there were signs saying to social distance, but no real enforcement that all of these other places were staying open and he didn't think it was fair. Do you think the rules have been unfair? Well, as we've seen in some places in Ontario, and I think this is especially the case in Ontario, um, their restrictions have been extremely unfair to small businesses. They've actually allowed big box stores to remain open while completely closing small business retailers. So that is one example of a province that I think has not had a fair level playing field um, for these restrictions. And again, as you said, um, business owners are simply at their wits end. They, they are extremely frustrated. They're, they're probably taking on immense amount of debt and quite frankly there just there just doesn't seem to be any you know any hopeful glimmer of hope you know coming out of this and and when they might be able to get back to normal operations and start making normal revenues this is especially the case in the hospitality industry where only 12 percent of business owners in that industry are making normal revenues for this time of year so it is definitely a very very concerning state uh, for businesses in that industry Uh, Are you surprised even 12% are able to do that? Yeah, it is actually, even that is still surprising that there's still, again, nearly a little over one in five small businesses in the hospitality industry that uh, that are seeing, you know, normal revenues for this time of year. But yeah, that's still a very, very large percent that are under that uh, normal revenue kind of threshold. And again, it points to the fact that uh, nearly 70% of, of business owners have even said that relying on federal and provincial supports is actually, you know, necessary for their survival, which really means they're, you know, they're being propped up right now by these provincial and federal supports. And as long as we have these restrictions in place and uh, and operating restrictions, then no government um, should be looking at turning off the taps to provincial support and really should be looking at expanding support mechanisms to small businesses. Uh, You mentioned uh, the speculation and vacancy tax, uh, which is something we talked about on the program earlier uh, with a lawyer who specializes uh, in uh, that type uh, of taxation, uh, property taxes. Uh, He was talking specifically, it was a story in the Vancouver Sun uh, of a restaurant in Vancouver where he's getting taxed. He owns the airspace and he's uh, being hit with the speculation and vacancy tax for the airspace above the business. Basically, uh, the the reason being or the uh, he's being told you had two years, you should have developed something. should have built and uh, should have developed the property. Uh, Would you like to see businesses, or sorry, governments, at least, even if it's just in the short term, uh, extend the exemption of that tax or put it off so so businesses like that aren't being uh, stuck with another additional bill? In this case, it's another tax bill of $6,000. Well, that's exactly the case, and uh, you know, you know, it's pretty—it's adding insult to injury for the provincial government to proceed with this. As you mentioned, um, this is not a property tax increase. This is an additional new tax on small businesses. Where again, it, you know, it, you got to give your head a shake that this is even being applied to business owners. Um, for example, you know, what is a business owner supposed to do? Um, put up a tent on their roof and rent it out? Like, you, you can imagine how, how that makes no sense, especially for someone who actually rents out um, that lease space. So, 
You know, I, I got to say, I really hope that uh, the provincial government, the B.C. government, uh, at least provides another exemption to this SBT uh, to business owners. But really, it shouldn't be applied to business owners at all. I know we have a, a British Columbia, the B.C. government should be uh, introducing its uh, budget in the couple of weeks here. And we're going to be making a strong call for an exemption to that SBT because, again, you, you got to give your head a shake of, of what's being done here at a time when small businesses uh, can least afford any new taxes. Uh, I know uh, the Federation's president, Dan Kelly, has talked a, a little bit as well about rapid testing, uh, other tools that can be used that could potentially speed up the reopening or make workplaces even safer. Uh, do you think that that would make a difference or what else would you like to see done? Well, uh, definitely small businesses have actually, you know, are in support of these types of different uh, solutions instead of these lockdowns that have been implied and business restrictions that have been applied uh, for the last year here. So yes, as we're as we're kind of bearing down on on what looks like new restrictions in, in many parts of the provinces, um, new solutions, more creative solutions are going to be needed for to not only get us through the economic recovery phase, but also just to uh, avoid these types of restrictions that are so damaging to small businesses. You know, speaking, I, I'm not entirely sure what's being done in the NBC with rapid testing, but I know a couple of weeks ago the Alberta government actually opened up um, free rapid testing to private businesses where private businesses can apply to receive these rapid testing, uh, rapid tests. Um, and the kind of the only caveat for that is to ensure that they have proper screening protocols in place and they have an approved health care provider um, undergoing the uh, testing operations. So it seems like the Alberta government is looking at it more closely and something that all provinces should be looking at as well as a creative solution to, again, keep workplaces safe, but also just to avoid this uh, endless round of business restrictions that uh, seem to be happening more than a year after the pandemic. All right, Annie Dormuth, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having C5B on the show. We have been talking a lot about the restaurant industry, uh, the new provincial health order, which has stopped all in-house dining until at least April 19th. My guess is uh, there might be an update. There will at least be some questions about that at the briefing this afternoon in about a half an hour from now. Uh, We've talked about the two restaurants that opened, even with the public health order. They have now been closed, their business licenses temporarily suspended, and the hardship that a lot of restaurants are facing if they're not able to really move to a takeout scenario or if they don't have patio space, some with no patio space at all. Well, our show contributor, John Jang, is here now with the story of a restaurant owner in Nelson who says he temporarily closed the business because of angry and rude customers. Good afternoon, Jill. It seems like restaurants shutting down have been quite a story over the past few days. But while two of the restaurants in town had their business licenses suspended for circumventing public health orders, it's the third restaurant that recently closed in Nelson that should serve as a great reminder to everybody. Nick Diamond is the owner of the Main Street Diner in Nelson, and this past Saturday during the Eastern Long Weekend, he made the difficult decision to temporarily close the restaurant until Tuesday morning. The reason? Rude and arrogant customers. Nick, take us through what happened on Saturday that led to your decision. Yeah, um, traditionally, I mean, we're, we're, we're always here to serve our customers in our, in our community. And uh, on Saturday, we just saw a, a change in energy on the street. It was really busy. Um, seemed like a lot of unfamiliar faces. And um, people started kind of 
pushing us around a bit. They were pulling tables around on the patio. They were walking in the restaurant without a mask on. They kind of were disregarding the, the common sense rules that we've all bought into with the COVID pandemic. And uh, my staff were feeling stressed out and a lot of pressure. So I uh, talked about it with my management and we kind of just thought, let's uh, wrap up these tables and, and go have some more fun for ourselves this weekend because uh, it's a beautiful day here in the Kootenays and, and why I get angry over something that uh, is kind of outside of my control. I, I, you know, I, I think I understand that. I lived in Cranbrook for a short while, and uh, in that region of the East Kootenay, uh, they do get a lot of visitors from Alberta. And this was years ago, before COVID was ever a thing. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, were some of these visitors at your restaurant, do you feel like most of them were from out of province? Or did they also maybe come from places like Vancouver and the Lower Mainland? I, I, I really think it was just an influx of visitors in general, and uh, I, I, I was very uh, clear in what I posted publicly on the weekend that I wasn't uh, trying to take an attack at, at our neighboring province. Uh, my family's been in business for, for 37 years in this town, and uh, we've, we, we've done very well, and um, tourism has been a main factor for that. So I, I think it was just visitors in general, and it wasn't even just that they were visiting, is that they were being rude and uh, kind of not following the rules. And uh, I, I did look and I did make sure that I was up to date on the rules and, and what the government's asking us. And I just think that uh, if you're going to travel right now, you should be a little more courteous and a little more conscientious of uh, each other and health and safety. And uh, that was my decision was based on the just kind of overwhelming negative response. One thing I know about Nelson in that region is that it's so much about the community. And I think, I mean, I would have to assume, Nick, that uh, the response from a lot of your friends and family members in Nelson were overwhelmingly positive and supportive of your decision here. Yeah, I think the fact that you're calling me today is an indication that what I had to say resonated with a lot of people and not just in B.C. I've had a lot of my family. I, I, both my parents are originally from Edmonton. Um, I've had a lot of people from across Western Canada, some friends out east even. Um, th- there's just a lot, of, a lot of concern for health and safety, and I think uh, people really appreciated that I was willing to take a financial hit and uh, put the community and my staff at, uh, at the, front of the front of the queue, the most important of the day. And, and for your staff, when you made that decision on Saturday, you know, obviously for them, uh, any chance that they don't get to work is, is tough on them financially. But in the bigger perspective of things, money may not be the most important thing for them right now. Yeah, I've got uh, my aunt is, is one person that works for us, and she's in her 60s, and she's not been vaccinated yet. And uh, I think since I um, since since last spring, uh, when COVID hit, uh, my staff have had a real appreciation and understanding that I was always going to put their safety and health first. And even if that was uh, playing the baseball manager and telling them they're working too much in the summer when we were having busy weeks, or or making the decision to close, I. Uh, I do know that I cost my staff some hours by my decision, and uh, I did um, feel it was in their best interest, and I will tell you they they appreciated it and uh, supported my decision instantly and uh, jumped into closing and helped me get out of here quick so we could go enjoy some sunshine. Appreciate the baseball reference because uh, although it's a tough decision to make sometimes, it can always uh, turn out to be the correct one. Like if your ace, for example, is getting a little tired, that pitch count's getting a little too high, uh, you don't want them burning out like that. So I, I think I understand exactly what you're talking about. And, and finally, you know, you did reopen the Main Street uh, Diner as of about 90 minutes ago for this phone call. Uh, what has that been like so far? Have you noticed uh, things getting back to a level of normal there for you? Uh, the streets are much quieter today than they were on Saturday. Um, we've we've had some local businesses drop by for lunch, uh, a lot of calls of support, um, a lot of messages, a lot of people that have my phone number have been reaching out. Um, we had a gift basket from one of the grocery stores in town that have seen similar pressures from the general public and COVID concerns. Um, it, it seems like I said it resonated with a lot of people, and uh, it's been a, it's been kind of an overwhelming.
overwhelming amount of support. Now, uh, Nick, before we let you go, uh, over the weekend, we had heard, even even in places like Tofino and Vancouver Island, uh, a lot of lower mainland visitors, some of those locals in that area, a little frustrated, a little anxious. And I'm sure, similarly, there were some people from the lower mainland who went to visit the Kootenays, uh, might have been some of your customers there over the weekend. What is your message to people listening in the lower mainland right now who are looking up and seeing, wow, the weather's starting to get nice, and I'm feeling very tempted to go out and uh, explore BC? as they would have done in years past? Well, uh, uh, last summer was a, a, a tribute to the fact that people in BC wanted to travel their own province, and I applaud them and, uh, and encourage them to do so when it's safe. I would say, um, if you're asking what, what I want to say to the people of the Lower Mainland, it's uh, if you're going to come, please be very conscious of what's going on. Um, know the rules. Um, respect the rules if you go out, and uh, do it discreetly. Come visit us. Uh, order some takeout and uh, hit the beach. You know, there's there's a lot of opportunity. You don't have to come and start pushing staff around or start uh, looking for a, a sense of regular life that uh, just doesn't exist right now. So, Very well said. He is Nick Diamond, the owner of the Main Street Diner in Nelson. Nick, appreciate you giving us some time here, and best of luck with the business moving forward. Yeah, thank you very much. I uh, hope everything goes well on the coast and uh, the boys of the Vancouver Canucks and I can recover soon.